I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. probably appropriate as we're going to be talking about the spirit this morning um, to hear from the Millers and how they've looked for guidance uh, over the years. And uh, we are certainly very thankful for their ministry and to be able to partner with them. Uh, And as we turn to this passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you that you uh, work outwardly by your word, but inwardly by your spirit. That the way in which you speak to us is through this book we're given, but the way we understand it is still by your power to illuminate it for us. You gave it by your Spirit, and we receive it by your Spirit. So even this morning, would you open our hearts to receive it? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Those of you who know a little bit of my background, know that I went to a interdenominational seminary, and actually Adrian got a degree there too. We, we really enjoyed it. We loved it. But there were, we, there were some weird times where there were some different viewpoints, and one of them was right at the beginning in the new student orientation. Uh, the woman who was the director of the spiritual direction program got up in front of all these new students and She said, I know you're overwhelmed, and went on about that a bit. Why don't we take a minute to breathe? She tries to calm everybody down. And as we're sitting there, supposed to close our eyes, she says, and just breathe in Jesus. And I thought, well, you had to make it weird, you know? (laughs) Had to go and make it weird. And she's talking about being open to to the Spirit. And, you know, there's something to that, but there's something as well that's telling about how vague we are about the work of the Spirit. That we have a lot to say uh, about the, the work of Jesus. There's still plenty of confusion within the church about that, but, but this, when, we, when it gets to the Spirit, it's kind of like anything goes, you know. And you will hear all sorts of things said about what the Spirit does, how He's led different people. It's all very vague. But Jesus is quite clear. In fact, John Owen, an old 17th century 
theologian puts his finger on it. He says, when God planned the great work of saving sinners, He provided two gifts. He gave His Son and He gave His Spirit. He says, each person of the Trinity was involved in the great work of salvation. The love, grace, and wisdom of the Father planned it. The love, grace, and humility of the Son purchased it. And the love, grace, and power of the Holy Spirit enabled sinners to believe and receive it. In other words, what Jesus is laying out, even within this passage, is the the primary role of the Spirit is to convict and to convince. To convict and to convince. That's how we're going to approach this passage this morning. The Spirit is meant to convict us. Now, the passage begins as it seems that the disciples are finally starting to get what Jesus is saying, uh, or some aspect of it. We've been in the middle of this upper room discourse for quite a while now. It's a long discourse. But they're finally starting to understand that he really is saying, I'm going away. I'm not going to be with you anymore. And they're filled with sorrow. Uh, He says, none of you has asked me, where are you going? That's actually not entirely true. Back near the end of chapter 13, Peter asks that that question. He says, we don't know where you're going. But Peter immediately takes Jesus' response about how he can't follow as an occasion to make a big deal about how he would go anywhere for Jesus and do anything for Jesus. So he gets very quickly derailed and sidetracked from the question. And the conversation has wandered since then. And no one's really come back to this question. But what's fascinating is Jesus points that out, but then he doesn't dwell on it. What Jesus wants to elaborate on, what he wants to focus on, is what will happen because he goes away. He will send the Spirit. He'll send the Helper, the Advocate. Uh, those are the, that's the term that he's used often, but he also is, again, using the word Spirit throughout as well. He's sending the Spirit. And in verse 8, he's, he, makes, he makes it perfectly clear that when He comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And uh, there's plenty of commentaries and different viewpoints on exactly what all of this means. And, and most of it breaks down to the question of whether the Spirit convicts in the sense of passes a judgment of condemnation on people, or whether the Spirit convicts in the sense of bringing people to a realization. Uh, I happen to think it's the latter because he's offering this as comfort to them. It's to your advantage that I go away. We'll come back to that that thought in a minute, but uh, it's your advantage. In other words, it's for them. It's good for them that he goes away. What he's saying is, I'm sending the Spirit so that he will actually convict the world of everything that I'm doing. And he he talks about three particular aspects of that. He will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. Last week, we had talked about how Jesus was rejected over and over and over again, even by His own people. Uh, and Jesus talked about it, that that challenge will not go away. It will be part of the disciples' burden to bear 
as well. And yet, it is the Spirit that will convict people of sin, even though they do not believe now. It's the Spirit that will be at work to unmask what we keep hidden about ourselves, what we don't like to think about ourselves, that we are sinners. He comes to convict of righteousness. And this is the most confusing one. <laughs> because if you're, uh, if you're theologically, especially if you're theologically astute, you would guess where Jesus goes with this. He says he's going to convict concerning righteousness. This is in verse 10. But his reason is because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Not because you'll have my righteousness. Not any of those things that we think of. But rather what Jesus is describing is that what the Spirit will convict others about is that Jesus is righteous enough to ascend to the throne. And that idea of who's in power is clear enough when he gets to the next bit because he's talking about the ruler of this world. But when he's talking about going to the Father, he's not just talking about going home. He's talking about going to the one who sits on the throne. Jesus' righteousness that's being convicted here is not, is not simply that Jesus passes on his righteousness, but that he himself is righteous. That he has done everything that was needed. And so he has the right to sit on the throne. Of course, he has the right because he's the Son of God, but he has the right as the Son of Man because he has done everything well. And, he come, and the Spirit comes to convict of judgment. Specifically, not the judgment on sinners, though that's true in its own way, but the ruler of this world has been judged. That Satan is judged by the work that Jesus accomplishes. He proves that the lies of Satan aren't true. That God is not the withholding person. That Satan is always so keen to convince us that he is. I mean, that, that goes back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Did God really say? That's, his oldest, that's the oldest trick in the book. Like, literally. It's the oldest trick. Satan's lies about the character of God, but God's character is revealed on the cross. The extent to which he would go to save us. And the accusations of Satan are denied on the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus has provided everything that is needed for us. The conviction of the Spirit is central to the work of the Spirit. The reason Jesus goes away is to send the Spirit to convict us. This is this is part of why confession is not just a thing we tack on to our lives. A thing we just kind of slide into the service, wherever it makes sense. It's at the beginning of the service. <laughs> because we know we come before God as those who don't deserve to be here. 
But we also, and this is maybe the other side, the one that we often forget, is we come to confess the Lord to before the Lord because we are confident that we have been brought in by Jesus. And whether it's in private or whether it's sitting here on Sunday morning, if confession for you is this moment where you think, I've got to beat myself up, you're wrong. That's not the conviction of the Spirit. The conviction of the Spirit is that Jesus has done everything for you as a sinner, and so you can freely come to Him. That you can enjoy the privilege of coming before Him with confidence, even though, yes, we still sin. The difference is described in 2 Corinthians 7. So, if you've never spent any time in 2 Corinthians 7, it is the best passage on repentance. See, Paul has written the Corinthian church who's… we can't even begin to describe how messed up the Corinthian church is. Like, it's bad, real bad. He wrote them a a first letter, they responded, and this is what he says in in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, uh, well, he says, initially, I kind of regretted writing that letter. But then then he comes back, he says, uh, but even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though for a while, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt, and this is the important distinction he he starts to draw here, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. It isn't the work of the Spirit to feel guilty. Lots of people feel guilty about a lot of things. How many of you have family members? They guilt you. I'm sorry, it is inevitable that it happens in every single family at some level or another. We feel guilty about a lot of things. I feel guilty about stuff all the time, stuff I don't have to feel guilty about. Still do. We feel ashamed of a lot of things. And my goodness, we feel ashamed about all sorts of things, many things which are definitely not our fault, but they are a source of shame for us. No, 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 no. Feeling guilty is not a work of the Spirit. Feeling a godly grief that is confident in Jesus that leads to salvation without regret is the work of the Spirit. That distinction means everything. Plenty of people feel a worldly grief, but the conviction of the Spirit leads to life, leads to salvation without regret. See, conviction is a sign of the work of the Spirit, but it is a conviction of all that Jesus has done for us. It is the unmasking, yes, of who we are, of our sin, but in light of the cross. 
in light of what Jesus has done. Again, it is so often that people feel guilty about so many things. And sometimes they feel guilty because they got caught. And sometimes they get guilty, they feel guilty because they get you know, beat up about it over and over and over again. Sometimes we feel guilty about so many things, but the conviction of the Spirit is that I need what only Jesus can give. That's the conviction of the Spirit. Now look, it's to convict and it's to convince. Now, Jesus says in verse 7, it's actually better that I go away which is a real head-scratcher, especially for the disciples. I mean, he's just talked to them uh, in the last chapter about being his friends, which is a kind of rich, big category in, in the ancient world in particular. We may have thinned it out a bit, but that's a big deal, right? And I mean, we, imagine your friend being like, you know what, it's actually better if we don't spend time together. It's really going to enrich our relationship. Imagine saying that to your spouse. Look, it'll, we'll actually be better if we're not together. No, I mean, you know, there might, you might have something to work through, right? But that, that's the goal is to be together. No, 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 it sounds crazy. But what Jesus is saying is, look, you've had me with you. And certainly it's a big deal that Jesus is with us. Our whole salvation hangs on it. And yet what he's saying is there's more. Because I will send my spirit so that I will be in you. Again, that 17th century guy quoted John Owen has another great line about it. He says, while Jesus was with them, how little efficacy on their hearts had any of the heavenly promises he gave them. He's saying, think about it. While Jesus was ministering to them, did the disciples ever get it? No. But when the Spirit came, how full of joy did He make all things to them. And this is His work to the end of the world, to bring the promises of Christ to our minds and our hearts, to convince us, or to give us the comfort of them, the joy and the sweetness of them. As He goes on, uh, later, down to uh, verse 13, he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He says, look, the Spirit, it's going to convict of all those things. It's going to continue to guide you into the truth. Now, that doesn't mean truths, as in the sense of He's just going to tell you facts that are helpful as if He's going to come along and help reveal mathematics to you. Certainly, if that were a gift of the Spirit, it's passed some of us by. Uh, that He's going to open the mystery of si mysteries of science to you, that He's going to help you understand history and remember those dates that you can never remember about anything. No, it's got nothing to do with that. It is the truth, specifically the truth of what Jesus has done and accomplished. Right, this is the test. So John, who is the author of this gospel, you know, wrote a few other letters to the churches. 
And in 1 John, this is what he says. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Wait for it. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the test of the Spirit, is that it reveals the truth of what Jesus has accomplished. That's what He is convincing us of. And so, in verse 14, He describes that as giving Him glory. Rightly so, right? If the Spirit's work is to help us to see and understand the work of Jesus, it glorifies Him. For He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And he gives glory then back to the Father. Again, what the Father had given, this is into verse 15. Jesus is describing what the Father had given is already Jesus, it belongs to Jesus, and what Jesus has, the Spirit will claim. The work of convincing us of what Jesus has done, in in one way, is the whole work of sanctification. The whole work of being changed as a Christian. It's strange, actually, that we call Him the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, when the Spirit is mentioned, and the idea of a third person of the Trinity is a little vague in the Old Testament, but it's usually just the Spirit, or maybe the Spirit of the Lord. But in the New Testament, it's the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of holiness, and I, I suppose there's probably a few reasons for that, but, you know, one of them is, of course, He is a divine, you know, one of the Trinitarian persons who's holy by nature. But we don't talk about the holy Christ. It's true that Christ is holy, but that's not really a phrase we use. Uh, he certainly empowered the, the work of holiness that Jesus accomplished for us, the righteousness. But I think that this is it. He's called the Holy Spirit because His primary work is to make us holy in Christ, to set us apart, to convict and convince us of everything that Jesus has done for us. This is a perennial problem, by the way, within the church, is many people who are Christians want to change things in their life. I mean, I've struggled, you know, we've all struggled through that in some way. I have, you know, I know details about some of you, maybe not all of you, struggle with that when we're, saying, we're, we're thinking, I really want to change this thing. Maybe it's been a long-term struggle, and I just can't seem to find a way. And the reality is, while we talk about trusting in God, while we talk about looking for the Holy Spirit, there is often a practical disconnect. We know the words to say, but you get that feeling like, what am I doing here? It's just all my effort. And usually when that's the case, it's going nowhere. 
It's a hard thing to put your finger on, isn't it? What it means to trust in the Spirit. But I think that Jesus gives us a little map here. To trust in the Spirit looks like being confident in Jesus. Being confident in His grace that it really is sufficient for you. That He has not only paid the price for sin, but has broken the power of it. And it looks like confidence that the Father loves and has claimed you. Pastorally, I'll tell you, I'll say, and I, I think this has been my own experience too, is usually when I'm struggling with sin, not to say that, you know, I'm perfect or anybody's perfect at this point, but when I really feel stuck, there is usually a functional lack of confidence that Christ has broken the power of sin. And the love of the Father is a distant truth. It's a thing I know is true in principle, but I don't really lean into. By contrast, I will say, without fail, whenever I've seen anyone have a major breakthrough in terms of dealing with a a struggle in their life, it is the strangest thing because it usually doesn't happen by directly focusing on that issue. It usually, I think always happens because one or both of those things start to come into focus. The power of Christ over my sin and the love of the Father for me. That is the Spirit at work. That is how the power of sin is broken. That is how holiness thrives in a Christian. It is for our good. It is by the Spirit that we are convicted, not just that we are sinners, but that Jesus has done everything, and it is by His Spirit that we're convinced of how powerful, how sufficient everything Jesus has done is for us, and how profound and unending the love of the Father is for His own. That is the work of the Spirit, and that is what we need to dwell on. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we are not our own but we were bought with a price. That we are saved because the power of the Spirit is at work in us, not in some generic way. But specifically to convict and convince us of all that the Son has accomplished to bring us back to You. As we come to this meal, Lord,
would you feed us? Give us greater confidence that when we come to you, we come because Jesus has done everything, because Jesus has broken the power of sin, even in the most stubborn corners of our heart. And because you love us and you sent him for us. Lord, we pray that you would move powerfully by the Spirit in our lives, that that would lead us back to Christ and through Christ to you. So feed us on this meal, we pray in his name. Amen.